forward to getting a chance to chat with Lance Roberts. He is the Chief Investment Strategist, RIA Advisors. Lance, Happy New Year. Thanks for taking time with us. Absolutely. Happy New Year to you, too. I mean, I was just saying this week that all of the old stories from last year are still the stories for this year. Not a surprise. I mean, a couple of weeks doesn't make any difference. But can you make any forecasts at all without first starting with what you think the Federal Reserve is going to do in the U.S.? And in Canada's case, obviously, we have the central bank here, too. No, no. I mean, you know, really, this whole market, um, you know, for the last several years, has not been really a function of anything other than Fed policy. It's, it's certainly not traded on valuations, certainly hasn't traded on fundamentals by any real stretch of the imagination. Um, it's all been a function of what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to cut rates? Is it more monetary accommodation? And this whole rally that we saw from the end of October, uh, where the Federal Reserve made their famous you know, pivot statement, um, to a more, you know, to, to not hiking rates anymore, potentially even cutting rates, uh, that led to a 15% rally in the markets and that had nothing to do with fundamental growth. Uh, it was strictly a, a valuation expansion. In other words, we just increased multiples in the S&P for that rally. So yeah, it, it's all been Fed narrative and corporate share buybacks. Uh, and let's keep going with that story in that the market says what? We're going to get five, six uh, rate cuts you know, in the U.S. and the Fed, yeah. at least at their most optimistic, seemed like three rate cuts. And now and they continue to say, I, well, at least a lot of the Fed uh, presidents were scrambling after uh, Jerome Powell jumped in there and say, wait a second, it's not going to be that easy. Uh, but sell so they're they're double what the Fed would say in their dot yeah. plots. Well, not only that, um, but even the FOMC minutes that came out uh, yesterday uh, as or, or Wednesday of uh, this past week, um, even those minutes were not nearly as dovish as the common the conversation we've been getting from Jerome Powell. So, you know, this idea that the market's going to get six rate cuts this year is probably not realistic. I mean, unless, and, and there is a case here to be made that maybe the Fed is talking this game because there's a fundamental stress in the markets that we're not aware of just yet, at least the, the overall market. And you know, I was talking with Michael Leibowitz uh, just yesterday about this very same thing is that if you go back to 2019, and, and so let's, let's go back in the way, way back machine, all the way back to 2018 for just a second. Um, Cause there's a very interesting similarity of something that may be going on. So if we remember in September of 2018, the Fed was hiking rates. And in September of 2018, this is when President Trump was in office. Um, the, the Federal Reserve said, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. In other words, the Fed was saying, we need to hike rates more because of inflationary pressures in the economy. Well, at that point, the market sold off 20% between September and December yeah. of 2018. And, and, and this was where Donald Trump basically made overtones in the overall market that said, well, maybe I need to get rid of Mr. Powell because he's not playing the game. I'm not, uh, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, you know, he was wanting, you know, President Trump wanted rate cuts at that point to support economic growth and support the markets because that leads to consumer confidence. Well, um, lo and behold, by December, Jerome Powell says, ah, yeah, we, now they hadn't raised rates, they hadn't done anything since September. But, but by December, it's like, oh, yeah, we're at the neutral rate. We're good. We don't need to hike rates anymore. So a complete 180, the market takes off running. OK, so that's a little bit of what's been going on now. In June. 
The Fed starts cutting interest rates, but there was nothing wrong in the economy. The economy was fine. Markets are doing fine. Why was the Fed cutting rates? It didn't really make sense. And then in September, the Fed starts doing this massive repo bailout, the, the, this yeah. uh, repurchase operation uh, that was going on. It was a trillion dollars. And everybody's like, why are you doing all this repo? Now, we didn't know anything at the time that was going on. But there was stress in the financial system. Turns out later we were bailing out hedge funds like Citadel. But there was, there was clear stress in the financial markets. And that was that fracture that we saw heading into 2020. And that's when we started talking about we had an inverted yield curve. We were talking about the potential for a recession. The economy was set for a recession. And then we shut down the economy and caused the recession in, 20, in, in 2020. So here we are today. Um, very similar situation. The Fed all of a sudden has made this pivot from higher for longer to, oh, we need to cut rates. Everything's fine economically. So why would you want to cut rates here and risk having an inflation surge Mm -hmm. by having lower rates? But if we take a look at repo, repo has been spiking. The cost of overnight loans are up over 6% now. And that's something that we haven't seen since 2019. There's been this very sharp tick up and what's happening in the overnight repo market. So maybe there's a, a financial uh, fracture that is starting because of higher interest rates. The Fed sees this, and they're trying to get ahead of it. That's my only explanation. It's all a wild guess at this point, but that's the only thing I can see out there as to why the Fed has made such a sudden pivot to cutting rates and risking a resurgence of inflation. Yeah, when it first happened, that was one of my guesses or, or you know, questions. Is there something much yeah. worse out there? But I, I also add that, Repo problems in September 2019. Now, I called it the biggest financial story of my lifetime that no one's talking about. I mean, because it was such a systemic problem. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the system was breaking. So it'd be fascinating to see. And, and there's lots of other examples as we went through from that time. I mean, I talk regularly about the bailout needed for the um, UK pension system when the central bank there had to jump in and buy those bonds. We know uh, Silicon Valley Bank, again, the same kind of problems on the books. Japan, I I spent a lot of time looking at Japan and I shake my head every time I look at it, you know, but it's, (laughs) it's those internal financial things that don't usually make the headlines, you know, whether you know, at least the mainstream press. Uh, I'm still interested, though. I mean, I, I was thinking this the other day. I can't imagine the retracement would happen if that interest rate scenario of lower interest rates doesn't manifest in a somewhat similar time frame. If for some reason there's a surprise, because, I mean, look at the size of the bets made on that very thing. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's actually, this is uh, kind of a, a, a topic I'm writing about in this weekend's newsletter um, which is, you know, there is this disconnect between six rate cuts by the market, three rate cuts by the Fed. And if you're going to have to reconnect those two, either the Fed's going to have to become much more aggressive about cutting rates, which means something has gone wrong in the markets financially, economically, et cetera, which isn't good for stock prices, or stocks are going to get disappointed by not getting enough rate cuts and you're going to get a correction because of that as well. So, there's really kind of a painful conclusion that is going to basically converge potentially sometime over the next you know, three to six months. Um, having another five or 10 percent correction this year in the markets wouldn't be surprising as markets try to reconcile uh, this difference in economic outlooks. If the market gets into recessionary, you know, it starts to actually look at a recession, which doesn't look, you know, that high of a probability at the moment because we have a tremendous amount of deficit spending going on. 
um, the supporting economic growth. But if the economy happens to really start tipping over into a recession or we get a bigger contraction in employment than expected, uh, that could manifest itself into a much bigger contraction to the markets and, of course, uh, a much more aggressive Fed easing program at that point. It's interesting with some economists I know and respect. Uh, I've been warning them for, for about three, like since that repo problem in September 2019, that they're not looking at the right stuff. I mean, if they're making further forecasts about what's going to happen, because uh, the credit markets are where the action is. The credit markets where the problems are in Japan and, and UK, as I said, going to be in the you know European Union, clearly across many of the emerging markets. You know, it's actually what's the credit market saying that doesn't necessarily have to echo what the economy, and I think simply put, it's if I start getting worried, I'm going to get my money paid back or I'm going to get my money paid back when I lend to government in much devalued purchasing power currency. I'm not even looking at the economy at that point. You know, I, I'm right. I'm worried about something much more uh, same, uh, straightforward. Am I getting my money back and what will it buy when I do? No, that that's 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 a very true statement. And, and you try to use economics to manage a portfolio is doesn't really work out well over time because economics are very lagging. They take a long time to manifest. And, you know, if you're trying to invest money and manage risk in portfolios, the things you want to pay attention to are things that are much more real time. Credit markets are very real time. To your point, if there is a, you know, if there is a concern about repayment of principal, you're going to start seeing credit spreads widen out very quickly. That's a surefire sign that something's going wrong in the mm-hmm. financial system and you want to get money out, to, you know, into, into a form of safety. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, you know, it's great to talk about economics, but when it comes down to managing your portfolio, pay attention to things that are directly related to systemic risk, credit spreads, um, you know, volatility. Those type of things are a much better uh, way to understand what's happening in the markets and how that reflects to risk in your portfolio. One of the other things you've been writing about is the sentiment aspect in terms of people are clearly paying more for the same performance or anticipated performance. I mean, we call that price earnings ratios, but that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, if you're going to still do that, I'll pay actually a little bit more for that. And that's I guess that's a risk in the market, or at least that's something to keep a a close eye on, because if sentiment changes, you know, that could be the first to go. Yeah, no, look, and, and this has been, a, this has really kind of been a, a, a problem now, really, since 2009. Um, you know, in 2009, we changed the world financially. Um, you know, it's hard to understand just how much money has been thrown at, and I'm just talking about the US. Forget Canada, forget every other country in the world. I'm just talking about the US. People don't understand how much money has been thrown at bailing out and supporting and sustaining the economic and financial system in the U.S. It's $43 trillion. We're a $22 trillion economy. We've spent $43 trillion just since 2009 trying to support everything from the banking sector to the financial markets to uh, you know, ha- the housing market, you name it. And that was all just to sustain 2% economic growth. It was a very, very poor return on investments. We've been spending five to five and a half dollars for every dollar's worth of economic growth over the course of the last 13 years. That's not sustainable. But what it did was is it lofted asset prices at a four percentage increase over the historical average. So going back to 1900, from 1900 to 2008, the average growth in the S&P was about 8%. That's including inflation and dividends, the whole nine yards. 
Since 2009, we've had almost a 12% rate of annualized return. So we increased the annualized rate of return by four full percentage points over that course of that 13-year period by injecting $43 trillion into, this, into the system. The question investors have, and of course, now, now 12% growth is exceedingly far beyond what the economy can actually generate. So we're talking about economic growth from earnings and, and profits in, in the country. So you're growing the markets at a, a high, much higher clip than what the, the fundamental value of companies actually are. And so you have to ask yourself going forward, how on earth are we going to sustain those types of returns in an environment that's growing at 2% with 2% inflation, which is what the Fed wants? You can't grow earnings to support that rate of return. So even a return back to normal average rates of return are going to seem very disappointing from what we've lived in over the past, you know, 10 years. Let's talk about the U.S. debt for a second, just be, uh, just because it crossed the $34 trillion mark, you know, which is a number. And yeah, exactly. It's a number of well, both things, actually. It's a number so big, it's numbing and people don't know. But your your response is the, is the one that we've been observing here for a while that, you know, I may sit there and go, uh, there's going to be consequences to the deficit. I think we should discuss what they will be. You know, it's not some sort of automatic, oh, the economy is going to crash or the world's going to come to an end. You know, I'm more in that camp that says, well, you know, Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank said it a couple of years ago. She says, we can't go bankrupt here because we're just going to print the money we owe to people. And clearly there's been a lot of money creation going going on, as you say, with the kind of numbers you were just alluding to. And I'm just thinking of, first of all, do you think it's significant? And what is the significance when I mean, what is it, two and a half trillion dollars added to the U.S. federal deficit since the deal on the debt ceiling in June last year? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it's a shame, you know, first of all, just, you know, from a political kind of commentary standpoint, it's a shame that we don't have a, a group of politicians who are charged with managing the economy of the United States for 330 million people. Yeah that we don't have a set of, and really, honestly, this goes for every country in the world. It's not just the U.S. But, you know, this has become a very elite club of people that are only look out for themselves rather than the welfare of the, of the total economy. And it, it's a very sad statement to make because this is not what our founding fathers intended. And it's really not the way that, that you know, governments around the world were ever intended to operate you know, at the at really kind of the, the behest of themselves rather than for the benefit of the global good. And, you know, but, you know, when you start talking about the amount of the debt, right, 34 trillion, it's a it's a mind boggling number. But we have to look, you know, you can look at Japan. Um, Japan's running a 210, 220 percent debt to GDP ratio. We're about 120 percent of debt to GDP right now. So, you know, the, the easy answer is like, oh, we got lots of room to go. But the important thing to understand is, is that the more debt you have, look, just because we have 34 trillion in debt doesn't mean Armageddon's going to happen tomorrow. Doesn't mean, I, look, I see all these articles before I was like, oh, de-dollarization of America and you know, the, the, the economy's going to collapse. You better have your bunker ready, uh, better own gold because that's, you know, that's the only thing that's going to matter. And, and look, you know, there's, there's no evidence that we are to that point just yet. But what debt does mean and the more debt you have, the lower your rate of economic growth is going to be, the lower your economic prosperity is going to be. And this is why when you take a look at the, at the division that's going on in America right now, and you know, America is clearly one of the great capitalist experiments in, in all of human history. 
And the, the, what's going on in the economy right now is the ultimate end game of capitalism, where capitalism is no longer for the benefit of, of growing economic prosperity for all, but only for a few. And you're now seeing that wealth gap between the, the rich and the poor expand to the point that you're now getting this massive division of views within the economy. And that's all a function of the debt. Ultimately, it's the debt because you, it's not just government debt we're talking about. Yeah. It's also yeah. student loan debt. It's credit card debt. It's, it's, it's mortgage debt. It's all this debt because, for, and, and let me give you a couple of just numbers to bring this home very quickly. In the 1960s and 70s, the economy in the U.S. grew at about 8% on average. The average household debt to net worth was about 60% of debt to net worth. And then the majority of that debt was the house, right? Today, the average debt to net worth is 150 to 160%. And that's on average. That includes the people at the top of the income stream that have very little debt. So you really kind of start to get down to the bottom, 80%. Their, their, debt to income, their debt to net worth ratios are far worse. But- that's the problem, right? We've just we've we've grown an economy on debt, which is not sustainable. And we need to come back to the point of growing an economy and reducing that debt so that we have more productive dollars going into productive investments, not going into debt service. Uh, well, uh, if if you're worried about the U.S., you should see the Canadian numbers. You know, productivity per capita. Uh, I think the U.S. is at about twenty-eight thousand. We're at fifteen thousand. You know, uh, translating using the currency. Uh, but, but of course, we've been stagnating much longer. OECD says Canada is going to be the worst performing on a GDP, real GDP per capita this decade. And then they said, if that's not enough, hasn't got your attention, let's do the next three decades. You know, yeah. uh, that's hardly a. But it's exactly the same problem as you described, uh, which is, a, you know, I, I keep thinking, is it just my recency bias that says that this is a very difficult, risky time to invest? I'm thinking geopolitically, at least, uh, I, I don't feel people still seem to appreciate when I look at the optimism, for example, in the markets, appreciate the geopolitical risk. You know, they're aware of Ukraine, of course, they're aware of what's going on uh, you know, with the Hamas attack on Israel, but also Taiwan is still, you know, bubbling over there. So I started going, my gosh, there's all of that risk. And oh, my gosh, it's escalating, actually. And if, if one is following the news, it's actually escalating. Oh, my gosh, we do have some consequences for that debt buildup, whether, it, as they say, it turns uh, the purchasing power of the currency goes down, uh, what have you. The, the list is a long one, but I don't know if it's just me sitting here today going, that seems unusual or... That's just, uh, I, I've just forgotten history. No, you haven't forgotten history. You know, the, the, the problem is really twofold. One, going back to what I said earlier, we keep electing individuals into office that keep doing the very same things. And, you know, that's the old definition of insanity, right? Yep. Um, you know, I keep hoping that at some point voters around the world are going to wake up and go, I've had enough. I want something different. And we're going to try something different. But that all, and see, and, and remember, all these political conflicts that we have around the geopolitical conflicts, whether it's Israel or, or Ukraine or whatever, all derive from those that are running the countries at the top. It's not the citizens that are causing yeah. this problem, right? It's the government. So, and, and, and at the end of the day, it's about money, my friend. You know, it's about spending. And, and, you know, the reason that our government likes war is because we make a lot of money at it because everybody wants our, you know, wants the weapons. Um, and that's a very kind of callous thing to say, but it's just kind of a function of where we are. So when you start looking at geopolitical risk, 
We all have a very short recency bias now in, in the markets. Nobody looks at the long-term consequences of these actions. They don't look at the long-term outcomes of what would happen if China took over Taiwan yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, tomorrow. What would that mean for the global marketplace? What would that mean for my, my place within the world if, if something like that would occur? We, so we don't look that far away. All we look at is, is oh, the market went up yesterday. I'll better be in the market because I don't want to miss out. And by the way, we're talking about a very small percentage of people that actually invest in the financial markets, right? You, you take a look at, at the, the statistics in America, about 80% of Americans have less than $500 in the bank. Their average 401k balance is about forty-eight dollars to $50,000. It's less than one year's worth of income. They're not invested in financial markets. They're just trying to scrape together enough money to get by. So we're really talking about the investing class. We're talking about the top 10% of income earners which is becoming a much more narrow bracket, you know, as, as the years kind of go on here. Well, I, I'm proud to say on Money Talks, right from the get-go of the, uh, the lockdowns and the pandemic, I asked questions about, well, what do you think the impact's going to be on lower income? It was so obvious that the policies that were getting adopted would only favor those with assets. Number one, real estate, which was a broader scale, and you say the small percentage in stocks, uh, and it just seems still to this moment, we continue to ignore, as you said, you know, the number of people. Well, in the States, the numbers are just as big about who don't have a bank account or anything meaningful. They can't meet even one month's worth of expenses. Lots of ways to describe that. Um, and I just think there's going to be massive social, social repercussions, especially when governments are putting in policies that do raise prices, you know, uh, that we've all experienced. Yeah, but Mike, that's what I'm talking about. That, yeah. That's exactly what I was saying earlier is that you look at all the unrest. Look, you know, you, you know, we want to talk about unrest in the United States, right? We got lots of problems, lots of division. It's not, it's not really the talking points that you hear in the media that's the problem. Those are things that people are latching onto. It's like, yeah, that's why I'm upset is because of this. But it's, it's this underlying, you know, disappointment more than anything else. But you know, when you're just when you're faced with a kind of this crushing pressure of higher prices and lower wages, not not being able to take care of your family. You know, somebody gives you a piece of red meat, says, yeah, this is the reason why this person over yeah. here, or this group over here is like, yeah. And they latch onto that because that's the only way they know how to express their anger. Right. And, and we see a lot of that. But when you dig down into the root cause of all this. This has been really something growing since 2009, since the financial yes. crisis was when this really started to root. And you had this division of wealth within the country. Where, you know, we had the remember the uh, you know we had the 99 percent back in uh, 2009. They were camping out on Wall Street, yep. and, and it's been it's been going, it's been going ever since. And, and you know, from the cost of health care to the cost of child care to all this other stuff. You know, we're not helping those people. And, and to your point, right, we did all these handouts in 2020. We sent people checks. We, we gave them child care benefits. We did all this type of stuff. And I said, that's a terrible idea because all it's going to do is create inflation, which is exactly what happened. And then when the money ran out, now the prices are still up. The prices don't come down when you create artificial inflation. They don't go back to where they were. The prices are still there, but they're out of money. And now the situation's even worse. And that's why the anger just keeps growing and they just try to find people they can 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 loft it onto. Uh, let, let's finish with this. Um, and that's just, OK, how do people going forward 
what are you sort of broadly suggesting? Obviously, you don't know everyone listening's, you know, circumstances, but sort of broad themes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very big about protecting our purchasing power because I just think uh, I went to the bank uh, a week or so ago and was getting some Christmas money. And it just seemed absurd the way they just kept on forking over like $20 bills. It's just pieces of paper. And it just, right. of course, that's one of my themes. But I, I look at that going, this is just nonsense. You know, or the U.S. now debating, well, let's give another $50 billion to Ukraine as if they had the money. No, they just have yeah. the ability to create it. So I am worried that way for individuals, as you say, especially, I mean, we're, we're drilling down to the 75% of the public now, you know, who is, is having trouble with this. No, it's true. Look, and, and here, and here, now here's the problem with all this, right? We had this really great conversation talking about the ills of America and all these economic consequences. And now you want to ask me a question about, you know, what should you do with your money to protect against inflation? Well, you got in, you, and this is, and this is the, the, and this is where the dichotomy comes in. You know, there's, there's only a few ways to outpace the rate of inflation. You know, honestly, gold didn't do it last year. Gold, mm -hmm. gold traded, it did okay, right? But it, it didn't, it didn't really, and, and really going back to 2020 when we started having this big spike in inflation, gold didn't really offset your inflation risk to any great degree. The only thing that really offsets your inflation risk to to any sustainable degree, unfortunately, was stocks. But you go, but Lance, stocks are all over value. Yeah, they are. But in, in, in a period like we're in now, that there are very few alternatives for making sure that your savings are outpacing the rate of inflation over time. And so we've got to take advantage of those. You know, yields on 10-year on treasury bonds, they were over 5% last year. They're down to 4 now. So that trade is starting to go away um, in terms of being able just to lock in money at a higher rate. We're starting to lose that ability. So we're starting to get forced back in. And again, this is also where the Fed is. We're starting to get forced back into the stock market as the only real ability to offset or outpace the rate of inflation. Now, again, looking out over the course of the next 12 months, Mike, this is where it gets difficult. This, this may be the year that gold does fantastic, Right. I don't know. I can't predict that far ahead. Uh, you know, we can just make some guesses. But, you know, this may be the year that commodities, you know, commodities had a real commodities had a negative return last year uh, as a basket. Mm -hmm. So they, they didn't help you offset inflation. But maybe this year's the year that commodities are the place to be. It's too soon in the year to make that call just yet um, because we're just now going through rebalancing. We're doing tax uh, tax gain selling right now. But over the course of the next month or so, and maybe we can revisit, you know, in yeah. the, at the beginning yeah. of next quarter. But I think over the over the course of the next month or so, we will start to see the trends for this year begin to emerge. Where's the dollar headed? Where are interest rates actually headed? Where's inflation really headed? Or, or is inflation really heading to 2% or has the Fed created a, a potential for inflation to start rising again? Because of all this exuberance in the financial markets, people feel better. They go out and spend more money. That creates inflation. You know, those are be the things that are going to start to manifest themselves over the next couple of months. Well, it leads beautifully to me say we will visit again in the near future to do that. But they can also visit with you every day. Realinvestmentadvisors.com. You do a, a blog. You've got a newsletter people can access. So as this develops, because I couldn't agree more. That uh, I'm part, you know, well know the World Outlook Conference. Uh, you know, yeah. it starts February second and third. Why? Because we get some of this data to make it a little more certain at that point. You know, if certainty may be the wrong word, but more information. But they can go to realinvestmentadvisors.com 
every day and then look forward to your next appearance on Money Talks as I will. Lance, thanks for finding time and a happy new year. My pleasure. Thank you so much.